compartmentalized life thing is pretty big. In the last uh, several weeks, being here, I've probably had mm, somewhere between a dozen and two dozen conversations with couples about the influence of pornography in their family or their marriage. I had one just this week, uh, just a couple days ago, and uh, I, I said to her, he has probably told you this has nothing to do with you, right? She goes, yeah, he says that. So none, his wife, and that's true. See, he, he has so compartmentalized his life. He's like Mr. Nice Guy you married. But when you're not around or when he's bored or something else, he's, uh, he's into porn. And in his mind, that has no impact on how he views you, has no impact on his marriage, has no impact on the rest of life. It is something he does for a half hour, an hour, or on a bad day, a couple hours, tucked away, alone someplace by himself. And his mind has nothing to do with you. He goes, how can that happen? He said, because the parts of you are congruent. They sort of fit together. Yeah, see, he's not at all. <laughs> the guy's sitting there going, yeah, I'm not at all. That gets me out of this, and I'm, I'm not at all. <laughs> I'm not sure he understood what congruent was. But uh, it worked for him. If it gets me out of this, yeah, tell her whatever. Just get me out of this one. Guys, we've got to start to address that we're not one way at work and one way when we're someplace else and another way at home and another way if you're at church, another way when you're with one of your kids and a different way when you're with another kid. You see, you can look at other people's lives and notice theirs and miss yours completely. So those compartmentalized lives, it's what we're like but we've got to begin to address them. The public side of us. public side of us has to do with image. Again, some of you have polished this to a fine shine. You've actually put a fair amount of work and thought into what this image is. And it works for you in your mind, whether it does for reality. We, uh, I've got a couple of friends who uh, early on had uh, hair uh, implants. Didn't want to be bald, so they got uh, got surgically got hair installed. Now, in their mind, they look amazing, but you, you can see the rows. It, it, it's it's like watching corn grow in a field. <laughs> Seriously, it, it was done early. They, uh, they got a better technique now, but this was done early. And and you want to say the guy? Are, are you like fooling anybody, or just yourself? Like, come on, if you get pretty close, you, you see this. And uh, some of you are going, come on, don't be too hard on, on him, big boy. You, 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 could, you could use some implants up there yourself. Yeah, I know. Uh, give me a good deal. No, I don't want a good deal. Um, when I was at first in graduate school, there, the three guys who were writing the best books on identity all had really bad toupees. I'm going, okay, this doesn't make sense to me. You're writing this book about being your authentic self. You're writing this book, a book about how to be the real you. And, and you have, I mean, just look at your, the picture on the back of your book. You can tell. And uh, got to meet all these guys, and sure enough, bad, bad toupees. I'm going, okay, fine. But don't write books about being your real self if you're going to do this. Image. We are functioners. We are what we do. 
for so many of us. We define ourselves by what we do. We think about what we do. One of the biggest complaints of families about uh, fathers and husbands is even when he's home, he's not all home. His mind is someplace else. Brings work home. If he doesn't actually bring a, a, a case of it home, at least his mind's still there. We're functioners. It's what we do. And if it's not work-related, it's some other project we've got going in our mind. We also, the public side of us is controls. We do not want to let con- uh, those controls down, and we don't want to get out of control, particularly in public. Let's go back to the private side for just a minute. Private side's about identity. What we're really like, what we're really like when no one's looking, um, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a key to be male identity, our identity, what we're like. Let me talk for just a minute about dreams. Dreams. Because it's often a private side of men. I, I started this close to 20 years ago. Put together this set of questions. Say to guys, if I could guarantee you success and money was no issue, what would you do in the next 10 years? If I could guarantee you success, because again, image, no, no, no guy wants to fail. If I could guarantee you success, and money was not an issue, we could take money off the table, what would you do with your life? When I first started asking this question, it was fascinating to watch. Because most guys would little, get a little grin on their face. And their eyes would go up and over. They, they kicked into the reflective pattern. And they'd go, seriously? Like, money wasn't an issue? Money's no issue. I did not find, in my first well over 200 men I asked that question of, I did not find one guy who said, I have no idea. Almost every man has a dream. But what keeps it from happening is fear of failure or money. Now, if you're going to make your greatest contribution in your family, in your community, in your culture, we've got to create places where we can help men feed their dreams. It's funny how many guys who've always worked for somebody else go, I'd start my own little place. And they, it's all clear in their mind. I mean, they know exactly what that place is going to look like. I come from a very small town in the heartland of America. I'm sorry. It's where I was born. i got no control over that. I didn't, I didn't get to be born in a cool place like Perth. It's funny how many guys someplace in their 40s or 50s. Try to come back to that little town. 1,200 people, no stoplight. Like it's in the middle of nowhere. We always gauge civilization by how close is a McDonald's. Not that McDonald's is the benchmark for all of culture, but they've done their research. They know where to put McDonald's. If you've noticed, other than in the middle of real tough inner city places, they never shut a McDonald's down. 
McDonald's there never goes, uh, we put it in the wrong place. They never do that. They do their marketing research so well, they know exactly where McDonald's is going to work and not work. I, this little town, you have to drive almost 15 miles to a McDonald's. So it, it's, a, it's a ways from, from civilization. There have been, in the last uh, 20 years, more than 30 guys who've come to open up a small business in that town. And every one of them has failed. Every one of them has failed. There's just, there's just not enough population to make the business go. But a guy gets to a place in his life where he wants to go, I've had this dream for a long time. I want to make this thing happen. Without doing right business plans, without checking out all this stuff, he just starts it. Often built by building a building. So there's what used to be sort of a really bad uh, downtown area is now worse because guys who didn't renovate old buildings, they, they wanted to build their own building because that was part of the dream. And now there's another empty building waiting for another guy to come along with his dream because he's probably going to be the one who does it right. That next guy that comes in, yeah, he's probably going to do it right. So start thinking about it. If I was guaranteed success, because I'm not about to fail, and money was no issue, what would you do? Now, the relational side, intimacy. We'll talk more about this in the second half. The relational side. Gordon McDonald started off with a tape um, that was called uh, one of his locker room talks. It's called uh, the Tess Men Face. It then became expanded, and the book is called When Men Think Private Thoughts. The tape's actually better than the book. It's true for a lot of us. Uh, he got a couple pretty good talks, tried to write it out. The publisher wants it to be too long so they can make money, and it's just not as good as an hour talk man-to-man. It's often a lot better. He talks about how men want and need intimacy at four levels. He said men want and need intimacy with other men. Now, last Saturday night I touched on this just a bit at, at, uh, at the couple's thing. Just a handful of you were there. I'm going to go back to this one. The issue with men and intimacy. Let me just define intimacy. I've used it a couple times. Intimacy is not a word that men use that much. The concept is there. We just don't use the term. Intimacy is a sense of being understood and valued and appreciated just simply for who you are. That sense that it's okay to be me. And somebody understands that, knows that about me, and it's okay. That's intimacy at its basic core. He said, men want to need intimacy with other men. The problem is, we don't create places to do that. He said, in the days when men would stop on the way home, would stop at the pub, they'd have a drink or two and just talk about their day, talk about being men. He said, when they went home, they were typically better men if they stopped at two drinks. He said, we got into the 80s and into the 90s, and we started to say, families are falling apart every place. Men, you got to go home. And men started going straight home. Responsible men started going straight home. And we lost a lot in cultures around the world. Because men went home frustrated. Men went home tired. Men went home without processing their stuff. 
And men got home, and they were home, but they weren't happy. See, we've got to create places for men just to be men. Let me take this from intimacy to affection. Men have a hard time with affection. There are places where it's okay and places where it's not okay. For example, athletic field, affection's okay. I, uh, in my first three weeks here, I caught two footy games. I got indoctrinated well. It's a different sport than gridiron. Um, my wife loves the sport. I, I, I think it's because it reminds her of me when I was young. The kind of <laughs> yeah, um, we're not going to spend any time on that one. Now she goes, this, this is a really cool sport. It's sort of like soccer with hockey rules. You get to, like, beat each other up while you kick the ball down the field. She goes, this is a great sport. It's like the hostility of hockey and uh, soccer rules. She goes, this is a great sport. I can see why people like it. She'd go all the time. Fortunately, we're, uh, we've got to leave Perth before the season really gets underway. So she's trying to figure out, do we fly other places to catch games or what's the deal here? Um, on, uh, on an athletic field, it's okay for men to express affection to other men. I watched. Guys score, they go up, they touch each other, all sorts of places, rub heads, rub faces. You can do that. Athletic fields are okay places for men to express affection. Where else do men get to express affection? Now, when I was uh, younger, had ponytail and stuff, I, I, uh, I was told I looked more like a biker than a, than a uh, professor. I've been told that forever. So I thought, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to go to some biker gatherings on Saturdays. And so I drive pretty close and then find out where these guys were and then walk in. And apparently I look like a generic biker, even to bikers. It was, it was fascinating to me. When I'd walk up, somebody would go, hey, he's here. Like they knew me. <laughs> now... In uh, certain biker gatherings, there are ways men, uh, and because of the image, those men get to do whatever they want to do. They don't have to live by anybody else's standards. And uh, I had endless numbers of guys who would come up to me, grab my face, and rub their face against mine. I'm not enjoying this, but this is sort of a weird greeting. And uh, happened enough to me, I thought, this is apparently biker greedy. Now, at work, I don't recommend you do this. My uh, youngest daughter, or my oldest daughter, was uh, first year at uni. And she called and she said, Dad, guess what? When she said, guess what, you, you never wanted to guess. Because you knew it was just, she was sort of out there. She goes, Dad, I shaved my head said, are we talking short? She said, we're talking shiny. It's okay. Now, what she didn't tell me is at the same time, she pierced her nose right, right through the middle, septum ring. So, well, when she was uh, just a few years before, or just a few months before that, really nice looking, beautiful hair, long, wore makeup. She, she was really great looking. Now, shaved head, shiny, big ring right through her nose. Not the same little girl that we sent off to uni. She said, Dad, it's so interesting. She said, there's a shaved head 
subculture. She said, uh, she said, scared me at first. I'd be walking down the street. She, she always lived in, in a big city. She'd you'd be walking down the street, and somebody would just run up to her, grab her head, and they'd rub heads together. She said, at first, it scared me death. She said, then it got us sort of used to it. She goes, I don't think I'm ever going to like do it to other people. But she said, it, it's weird that in a subculture you get to do that. Now, I'll give you one more aspect of this. In Gridiron, we just had the uh, Super Bowl six weeks ago, five weeks ago. When they score that winning touchdown, these men don't line up and shake hands with each other. No. They run on the field, jump on top of each other, have this big pileup, and nobody worries about it. No guy on the bottom's going, that guy's touching me. Uh, can't, can't believe that guy's on top of me. You have very large men in very tight pants who are on top of each other, grabbing each other's backsides. And that's cool. Because it's gridiron and you're on the field. Do that at work or do that in church. They wonder about you. They wonder about you. Some of you are going, really? They don't when I when I grab their backside? No, you, they wonder about you. They just don't say anything to you. I promise. So for guys like us to sit around and go, yeah, see, I, 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 don't, I don't do any affection. Men like us don't do affection. Sure you do. You just have places where it's okay to do it, places where it's not okay to do it. One of your jobs as you pass on the next generation is expand how many places it's okay just for men to be men together. Men to express intimacy, affection, that kind of stuff. McDonald says, men want and need intimacy, a close connection with a mentor. He said, for some, your father, your grandfather, was sort of that man of wisdom in your life. Somebody who talked to you about meaningful stuff in life. It's what you learned from them. They talked to you about value of life. They talked to you about values. They talked to you sometimes about women. They talked to you about your dreams. It's what a mentor does. At its best, it's what fathers and grandfathers do. They pass on key stuff about life. He said men want and need that. Interesting statistics around the world. They're different in different countries. But men who are in prison, so many of them report. It's always well over half. In some cultures, it's as high is 92, 94% of men in prison, not jail, prison, report that they had no close connection with a father figure in their life. When it came, to, when it came time to pass on to them, here's what a man is. There was no man in their life to give them that. And so they went out on the street and learned it on the street. And now they're in prison or dead. I was a part of a leadership, a young leaders program, and there was a talented young black man there. And when you're around him, you just went, this guy gets it. Um, he had a bad limp on his walk, and 
One time I said to him, what, what happened to your leg? I assume he'd gotten shot or something. When he was in the early 20s, he had cancer, and they had to cut out a big section of his leg. But he, he ran a program in one of the inner cities, big inner cities of Memphis uh, in the U.S. And what he had done is figured out that the average man in his community, the average young man, had a lifespan of 21 and a half years. They got shot on the streets. Uh, if they were lucky, they lived longer because they went to prison. And he <clears throat> got together all of the street guys, the drug dealers, the con artists, everybody. And he interviewed them. He knew them because he'd been one of them. But he interviewed them and figured out that these guys are actually pretty good business guys. And he, he came out of this. Ten, originally, ten principles of how to be an entrepreneurial businessman. And so he created seminars, and he would go up to young guys on the street, and he, even, even guys who were early 20s, and he'd say, you know if you don't change, you're going to be dead or in prison in the next couple of years. You know that. Let me show you how to take what you actually know and turn it into a legitimate business. You probably won't make as much money as you make now, but you'll live three times longer. And don't have to look over your shoulder. And you can go to sleep at night, not afraid somebody's going to shoot you or you're going to get arrested in a raid. He put together one of the, one of the programs that's just revolutionized a lot of inner cities, in, uh, not just in the U.S., but he's imported this thing around, or exported this thing various places around the world. Because he was able to show young men who'd never had a mentor how to take what they learned on the street and actually turn it into ways to make money. Now, if you grew up without a significant father figure in your life, this mentoring thing becomes very significant. One of the reasons I have given my life to mentoring, it's what I do, is because there are so many men at various corners in the world who never got this from another man in their life. And so my job is to go into places and set up mentoring networks so that the next generation of men won't have to deal with some of this stuff. It's interesting how it looks in different cultures, though. Just in Africa not long ago. And uh, there was a, a young man asked if he could meet with me and he, as he talked, I began to listen. And I said, but your father's still alive, isn't he? He said, yep, but he has eight wives. And my mother's number five. I am one of 27 children. And he said, by the time it got to me, and mother number five apparently didn't have any status. He said, I, I never got anything. Now, here's a talented young guy on his way to becoming a lawyer who was like a little kid when he was around me, just hoping, hoping somebody would show some kind of interest in him. We run into it in various places around the world. I gave a talk on mentoring in the eastern states about three years ago. I thought that was my first introduction to how you talk about mentoring in an Australian context. And I thought, it'll be different here. No, you're, you're a different type. It'll be different here. wasn't very different at all. Couldn't believe when the seminar was done how many guys lined up. Look, I, I know you live half a world away. Is there any way I can stay connected? I hear this every place. There just aren't any men 
to mentor guys like me in this country. And I bet they're there. You just haven't found them yet. If they're there, yeah, nobody's finding them. Because I don't think they're there. Okay. Just reporting what I hear. Third thing is men want to need intimacy with a woman, with a spouse. I'll distinguish here women and spouse. When I first started doing this kind of reading and research, it was uh, it, it fascinated me. Penthouse Magazine. don't know if you've ever heard of that one. Penthouse Magazine actually hired a pollster. Some of you don't know. Penthouse, never heard of that one. Why, why would I know about that? <laughs> yeah. It's okay. That's a private side issue. Sorry to bring it into public. Uh, they hired uh, Harris, the pollster, to do research on um, men who had penthouse, who subscribed and had it sent to their house. Now, these aren't guys who buy it or guys who look at it. These are guys who have it sent to their house. And they surveyed these men of what were their fantasies and sexual preferences. And what they discovered was that 77.5% of men who subscribe and have penthouse sent to their home actually said they preferred good sex with their wife. Well, penthouse is going, that didn't do us any good. Like, that's a terrible stat. So they paid Harris and, and uh, that's the end of this research. Nobody's going to use this. Well, somewhere along the line, Paris, or, uh, Harris thought, this, this thing's worthwhile. So they ended up selling it, and uh, the Chicago Tribune bought it, published it, and then several other people bought it and published it, and began this whole round of research on how men, no matter what kind of man you are, what you really want is that satisfaction of a deep, intimate, and sexual connection with the woman you love. Forget fantasy. Forget the porn industry. What men really want is that deep connection with that woman they've loved for a long time. Hmm. The problem is, men, we don't always know how to get that. So it's easier to do something where you can get a quick fix, like porn. Get a quick fix where you don't have to put out as much energy, you don't have to worry about response, you don't have to worry about rejection. Everything always goes well. But the research is overwhelming that men really want and need that kind of intimacy with a woman they love. And according to McDonald, men also want and need intimacy with God. They often don't know how to get it. At this point, he becomes a little hard on churches and even ministers. And said, we've got to teach men how to connect with God. And he said, often we don't even teach it. We talk about church stuff at church. We talk about organizational stuff and religious stuff. We don't actually talk about how to connect men to God. Well, that's why we're doing what we're doing today. Let's keep going. The private side of men, emotional development. I'm going to make this very brief and I'll tell you why. Because next month, we, we thought we had the date set. It was actually supposed to be in two weeks, but um, Elders Retreat needed me for something else, so we're actually going to book something next month on how to, to develop 
emotional and spiritual depth in your life? How to get deeper connections with uh, human relationships and with God? So I'm just going to make this brief because it ties in with what we want to cover for the rest of our morning. Emotional development is a fascinating thing that gets almost no talk. Any of you who have children, remember if you didn't study it or talk about it, your, your, uh, your wife definitely did. There's Every woman knows, most couples know, that when a child is born, there's stages of physical development you go through, stages of of a cognitive, intellectual development you go through. People are always excited because their child is nine months old and they're way ahead. They're, they're operating like a 16-month-old and they're only nine months old. Good, good on you. Um, it, it's, 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 it's funny the guys who are going, yeah, my son is two. Looks like he's going to be a giant. In the meantime, you know, dad's five and a half feet tall and I'm going, what? Did, the milkman stopped by in the afternoon or what? How, how's this kid going to be a giant? You and your wife are both about the same height. There, there's this thing that we track it. We track uh, physical development. We track cognitive, intellectual development. <clears throat> but we don't track emotional development in children. There's research out there. It's just never been popularized, and we don't teach parents. I will argue it is as staged as is physical development and intellectual development. <clears throat> if you uh, don't have a good diet when you're growing up, if your diet's deficient in stuff, your, your bones don't develop. You don't grow in the same way. There's deficiencies in your physical development. We see it in children around the world. There are certain things that you learn cognitively that have to be learned in sequence. I'll give you an example. We moved to Canada. Our youngest daughter was starting kindergarten. We put her in a French immersion kindergarten. They only spoke French to her. Education is one of the best ways to get children to learn languages. Now, if you stay in that French immersion program until you're through grade four, you're completely bilingual for the rest of your life, they say. We left that school and moved out of Canada when she was end of grade three. Now, when she was at the end of grade three in Canada, they had taught the children how to multiply by ones, twos, threes, and fours. When she got to New York and got into grade four, they were multiplying by eights and nines and tens. She skipped learning how to multiply by five, six, and seven. Our daughter just left on Tuesday. She was here with us. <clears throat> she lives and works in the central part of New York City. Um, and a year and a half out of uni, had gotten three promotions. The youngest manager CBS has ever had in the department. She, she's amazing. She still, as a 24-year-old, cannot multiply by five, sixes, and sevens. I've watched her forever. She'll be working on something and she'll pause and she'll go like this. And what are you doing? She goes, yeah, I can't multiply by five, six, or seven. I said, you are, you're so bright. Come on, I mean, you, you graduate uni with honors. You're so bright. 
why, why can't you like figure these out? She goes, Dad, I have tried everything. I have tried everything to learn how to do this. She goes, I guess if you don't learn it in sequence, it's almost impossible to learn. I want to tell you as men, it's almost an identical parallel to your emotional development. If you don't get the stuff you need growing up, it's not impossible to go back and get it. But boy, is it tough. Now, it doesn't mean you're destined for whatever it is, a loser or something else. It's just you're always going to have something you feel like's missing. The great thing about <clears throat> emotional development is there's not all that many when it comes to emotional deprivations of things you, you didn't get or needed. There's just a handful. Let's cover these quickly. The first one is security. If you've ever heard of Maslow's and hierarchy of need, Maslow was right on this one. <clears throat> that it's basic core, one of, the, one of the basic things people need is that sense of being safe and secure. That it's okay to be you at your place, at your house. It's okay to be you. The second one is just the need to be loved. Now, for any of you who are parents, let me take pressure off you. There's only two things a child needs growing up to have a really good shot at becoming an adult. Two things. One is a sense of personal security. That it's okay to be me at this house. I'm not going to get attacked. Nobody's going to beat me. Nobody's going to discredit me and take away my personhood. Nobody's going to treat me like I don't exist as a person. Just that security thing. You get that, you've given a child a lot. The second thing is a sense that they're loved. Now, you give kids those two things, that's all they need to grow up well. If you don't give them those two things, no matter what else you give them, they're always going to feel like they've missed something. One of the things I do that I have no idea how I got into is I have a, um, sort of a, a personal coaching thing in New York and around the northeastern United States with for lack of a better term, excessively wealthy families. I work with them. Don't know how I got into it. I just did. It's interesting to me how many of these people who have incredible amounts of money give their children everything except these two things. And these kids who have an amazing trust fund, the first question I ask when they're Older teenagers or young adults, tell me about your first car. I just did premarital counseling for two of these before I left in January. And I turned to the girls and I said, uh, let's talk about how you're going to become an adult because you grew up as a princess. I'm not a princess. Uh, yeah, you are. Uh, let me just ask one question. Tell me about your first car. Well, my dad gave me his. What was it? Uh, it was a one-year-old Mercedes. Okay. Not that many 16-year-old girls across the country. Actually, she goes, actually, I was 15 and a half. Yeah, okay. Not that many 15 and a half-year-old girls drive as their first car um, a Mercedes. Especially a top-of-the-liner because you got daddies. 
So like it or not, that puts you in a bit of a princess category. She goes, but he gave it to me because it's safe. It's really safe. And he wanted me to be safe because he knew I probably wasn't a good driver. Said, whatever reasons it was, you're the princess, okay? Whenever you ask, there are people who don't want to tell me what their first car was because they know where we're going to head with this. There's other questions to go after, but these two things are crucial. Third one is just confidence. You can instill that in kids, instill that in families. Intimacy, we've already talked about. It's one of the basic building blocks. Significance, just do I matter? When I get home, or back in the U.S., I am being asked to meet with four sons and their father. These four sons have all reached high levels of uh, professional development and success. The, the youngest one is, I think, 38 or 39. The oldest one is 45. The oldest son has a Ph.D., actually um, has a house in Bali, a whole bunch of stuff. They've all achieved very well. They said, but when we get together, we revert back to like 13-year-olds. And they said, it's, it's embarrassing. We, we humiliate ourselves and each other. And they said, if we can't get this worked out, we're just not going to get together as a family anymore. Because although we all have professional success, we're all good in our own right, we're all great dads, when we get back together, our dad still feeds this competitive thing. He gets us to make a fool of ourselves and he sits there and laughs. We're all still trying to get dad's approval. We all just want dad to say he's proud of us. He doesn't even have to be big. We just need dad to give us the fact that we're okay. And he's never, ever given it to us until they've said, since money's not an issue, can we hire you to come in for a long weekend? And be mediator. We want to get this thing solved. I said, I, I can come in, but how old is your dad? Well, like the month you come, he's going to turn 76. Okay. 